Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. I'm super excited about today's show. I'm going to be joined by Vani Hari, also known as the Food Babe, and we're going to explore how she followed her passion back in 2011 and grew a mega following and a movement using her blog. Now with that, let's transition over to today's discovery. After mediating a crocodile family dispute, look at what Michael Stelzner discovered. Okay, this week I've got an interesting new discovery and I'm going to try to pronounce its name, but I'm going to get it wrong. It's like Suvel, S-O-O-V-L-E.com. And what it is, is it's a very simple service where you go to this website, S-O-O-V-L-E.com, and you type in any particular phrase or keyword, and it will automatically show you what comes up on Google, YouTube, Bing, Yahoo, Wikipedia, Answers.com, eBay, Weather Channel, and Netflix. And um, this is interesting and intriguing because if you're looking for some interesting keywords to use in your blog posts or in your advertising or you're just wondering how the different results look across the different social channels, you could, of course, type in your full name and perhaps see how people are searching for that on the different channels. But I'll give you an example. I put in native video. And on Google, I got native video advertising examples, and then I got native video, and then I got native video advertising. On YouTube, I got Native American music and Native American flute. (laughs) So, and then, of course, on um, Yahoo, I got Native Americans, and on Bing, I got Native foods. So, it's pretty obvious that Google knows what native video is, but none of the other platforms do. But also, when you look at some of the results that came up with video, I got native video advertising, and then native video Twitter, native video Facebook. You could use this to kind of test maybe what the phrases are that are popular on the different search engines and see if there's any kind of consistency. It's just a really cool, very easy to use service, and what you do with it is completely up to you. And by the way, Amazon is also on that list. So check it out, S-O-O-V-L-E. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, 
but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. And with that, let's move over to today's interview with Vani. To help simplify your social safari, here's this week's special guest. I'm very excited to be joined today by Vani Hari. And if you don't know who Vani is, she's known online as The Food Babe. Her popular blog, foodbabe.com, focuses on healthy eating. She's built a massive platform through her articles and videos that investigate unhealthy ingredients in food. And her brand new blockbuster book is called The Food Babe Way. Vani, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're going to explore how Vani got started, how she built her following, and really kind of dig deep into how you got here. Let's start with your story. I know from my research you got started with your blog, if I'm not mistaken, in 2011. What were you doing before the blog, and what was the impetus that decided that got you to say, okay, let's start blogging? Sure. You know, I grew up eating um, processed foods, lots of processed foods. You know, both my parents were immigrants from India. And so they came here um, really trusting the American food supply. And the first thing my dad um, introduced my mom to after they had an arranged marriage and brought her to America for their honeymoon was a McDonald's hamburger. Mm. And (laughs) he was like, okay, if we're going to live in America, we're going to eat like Americans. And of course, uh, if you know, you know, in India, the cow is sacred. You know, my mom had never had hamburger in her life before. So it was a really, you know, big shock to her system. And so she quickly figured out that American food didn't work well with her. And so she actually continued to make Indian food at home for herself and and at night for my dad when he'd come home from work. And, um, and, and for me and my brother, she really let us eat whatever we wanted um, just to make sure we were fed, you know. And, and my brother you know, because he also wanted to fit in and I also wanted to fit into all the kids on the block. You know, we were some of the only Indian children in our community. Um, our Indian food looked really different and weird and smelled funny. And, and I didn't know anything about the medicinal qualities and all of those amazing spices or, you know, the, the health benefits of eating vegetables or anything really growing up. And so we shunned my mother's cooking. And so we asked for McDonald's, we got it, Burger King, we got it, Wendy's, we got it, whatever we wanted, really processed food, the help of Betty Crocker or, the Salisbury steak that you put in the microwave, we ate that, you know, almost every day growing up. And I was a child that, you know, didn't really take my lunch to school either. I, I ate the school system food, you know, because it was like a dollar, a buck to eat there. And um, my parents would give me the money and I would go eat there. And um, as a result, I had a lot of health issues as a, as a child. And I didn't really, you know, pinpoint any of my health issues to any of the things that I'd been eating because I thought they were largely genetics. My brother also had these health issues. Um, we had really severe eczema, asthma, allergies, um, allergies so bad that, you know, uh, 
constantly having a runny nose, that kind of thing, and, and always having stomach aches, all sorts of issues that my parents would bring me to doctor's offices and they would try to, um, you know, try to fix me by giving me prescription drugs or figuring something out, but they never really asked me to look into my food. And this awakening about my food didn't actually start to happen until many years later when I was just graduating college and got a really um, prestigious job working for a big six consulting firm. Mm. And um, to get into one of the big six consulting firms was very you know, hard to do. And so when I got that job, I was pretty excited and I was very ambitious. And I, and I thought, you know what, my goal is to be partner in this company and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And Growing up with those, uh, you know, demanding Indian parents, once again, my idea of success was a 401k, health insurance, and becoming an executive at a corporation. And I tell you, um, that first job almost killed me. Not only did I gain, you know, over 30 pounds very shortly from from taking on that role, but um, I landed in the hospital with appendicitis. And at the time, the doctors told me, you know, this can happen to anyone. And, you know, something just didn't really make sense to me that, you know, I was very sick, very inflamed and my body didn't feel well, didn't look well. And I was really eating, again, what everybody was eating around me, all the food that was catered in, that was brought in on the expense account, that we were would go out at night you know, to these fancy steakhouses and eat five course meals and, um, and really just kind of lost control of my food because I wanted to succeed at my job and do what all my coworkers was doing, you know, what they were doing. And so after this kind of wake up call moment in the hospital, I left the hospital, recovered for the next four weeks. And when I got back to my work, the first thing I did was start to research and start to learn about true health and nutrition and how, number one, how to lose the weight, but number two, like how to get healthy, how to feel really well. And I just had this desire to like make health my number one priority and not let anybody get in my way. I was so fed up with letting my surroundings control me. And I just decided, you know what, no more. And I started to channel this energy that I'd learned in in high school where I was a top tier debater. I was number one in state three years in a row, was recruited to college to be on the debate team. And one year's topic back then was healthcare. And and every summer we'd go away to uh, debate camps, really prestigious debate camps at Ivy League colleges like Dartmouth and and learn how to research like the old fashioned way. Yeah, you know, back then. that's exciting. <laughs> I used to be on the debate team too, so I'm smiling oh, over here. Cool. What what kind of debate did you do? Uh, just all sorts of stuff in college uh, and under, mostly undergrad. But uh, I remember, you know, you would investigate cases and you'd have to take, you'd have to understand the opposing view and you'd have to go through all this case law. You felt like you were an attorney, right? Doing all this research. Yeah, basically, because you have to debate both sides of an issue. It's exactly. Not, you, just, you don't just pick one side. And so you really learn, you know, how to find really the truth right. uh, in a way. Um, and And so, you know, I started to, you know, use this knowledge on how to research and started to apply it to my own health. And when I started to do that, I started to uncover a Pandora's box of information about the food system and about what I was eating and what the ingredients were and why they were in the food and why the food companies were using them. And what I found was that largely most of the chemicals that had been invented in the last 50 years or so were there for one reason – And the only reason was to improve the bottom line of the food industry, to figure out how to sell food cheaper 
be using food-like substances and make it taste like real food to really bamboozle the consumer and and give us, frankly, a less nutritious product. And I realized that the majority of food that I'd been eating was processed and dead and had little to no nutrients left in it. And once I figured that out and started to make better decisions about what I was putting in my body, just making a, a really like common sense kind of approach about what I was eating, deciding, you know what, I'm not going to eat these suspected risky chemicals. I'm going to eat real whole natural foods. Things started to change dramatically. I started to ask the question, is this going to provide nutrition to my body or is it going to take it away before I put something in my mouth? And just asking that fundamental question started to change my health so much so that I went off a prescription drugs. I uh, eliminated my eczema, my asthma, and I got healthy for the first time in my life, truly realized what it meant to be healthy and have energy that I never felt before. And my looks did a complete 180. I, you know, I went from someone who had a very like puffy face, swollen nose because of all the allergies, um, and overweight to this new being of health that I never thought was possible truly. And people were paying attention. My coworkers were paying attention. My my close members of my family and my friends were paying attention and they started to ask questions. They were like, whoa, whoa, whoa what, did you, what are you doing now? How did you get this way? And I swear, like one of my aunts, you know, my cousin tell, told me this story, but she said to, to my cousin, you know, I think Bonnie had work done. Like there's no way her body <laughs> can change that dramatically. And, and like, you know, like I, first of all, I'm like, you know, I don't ever want to end up on the surgery table ever again after that appendicitis episode, although I did with endometriosis, but that's an, another story for another time. But, you know, it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that that people think that's the only way you can transform. And, and now of course she knows, uh, the power of this way of eating cause she's actually adopted it as well. And she sees the benefits. And so when did you start writing about this, Monty? I mean, like, so like, so it took years, it took years, you know, that episode that I talked about landing in the hospital with appendicitis was, um, uh, uh, it was 14 years ago. So, um, and I started the blog four years ago. And so I went on this journey of health and, you know, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, of course, traveling on the road quite a bit for work, but I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. We didn't even have a Whole Foods up until two years ago. So you can only imagine trying to live this way and trying to eat organic and real Whole Foods without, you know, major grocery stores even providing some of the options. And so I had to look for alternative routes on how to get food and like go to the farmer's market and and, and my mom started growing her own food and like, you you know, all sorts of ways to try to get access to healthy food. And I started to learn a lot through my travels going to major cities. And one of the most fundamental trips that changed my life was going to Detroit for two years back and forth for work and realizing the organic movement that they had up there. And I would go to this restaurant called In Season where they'd serve the most fantastic food and I'd come home and try to recreate it. And I learned a lot, you know, trying to travel on the road and live this lifestyle and realized, first of all, that it's possible when I thought it was impossible. And I also realized that you can do and, and live this way very easily if you adopt habits. And that's actually what my, my new book's about. So I, I started the blog because my coworkers and my friends really asked me to. 
And at first, when I registered the name, uh, it was about, I think, about six months before I even started blogging. Uh, I, I yelled over to my husband and said, hey, I want to call the blog eathealthyliveforever.com. Can you register this name? And he said, are, are you crazy? That's a horrible name. No one's going to remember that. And he's kind of the, te- he's the tech geek in the family. And he's, I guess, the, the smarter one. But anyways, he, you know, he... Um, he said to me, that's horrible. And I, I was kind of offended. I was like, okay, well then, you know, you come up with a better name. And a couple minutes later, no joke, um, available on auction, I think it was $10, was foodbabe.com. And he said, what about Food Babe? That is awesome. And, you know, at first I didn't want to call it Food Babe. I was very nervous and very shy because most of my life I was anything but a Food Babe. So I still had that insecurity stuck in my brain. And so it wasn't, you know, I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to call myself the food babe. I'm going to teach other people to become a food babe. And so for the first year and a half of the blog, I never even had my photo on the blog because, again, I was still working in the corporate world, working for C-level executives in this very demanding role, you know, very visible role at work. I didn't want people to, to you know, my, my superiors to know about this other. Oh, so you were almost ghostwriting this in the beginning, huh? You didn't have your yeah. name associated with it at all. Yeah, I didn't even have I didn't even sign my blog post Fonny. I mean, I had my name nowhere on the blog for the first year and a half. So what were you writing about in the beginning? So at the beginning, you know, the first couple of blog posts, I remember them very vividly because uh, I worked on them forever. And I gave up actually television for Lent, even though I'm not Catholic, I'm Hindu, but I gave up television for Lent to find time to blog after work. Hmm. And because I was working, again, such a demanding job, I had to give up something in order to find time to do this. And so that was like the 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 kind of thing that basically allowed me to find this time and so um I, the first thing i wrote about was eating out while traveling because i was doing that all the time working for this corporation and then also um i i shared one of my famous salmon recipes and then also i was nursing an injury for my back and so i um I was just showing a different way to increase your heart rate when you're doing low impact exercise on the elliptical. And that video, I think is still <laughs> that video that my husband shot with my, uh, with my iPhone, um, is still, um, on, on, on YouTube, my first video. And it's me on an elliptical machine. It's kind of funny. Um, so, so those are the kind of things I started blogging about, but as soon as I realized that, there were other people out there beyond my friends and my family that uh, needed this information. I started to become a little bit more um, investigative. And I started to realize that I wanted to share new cutting edge information with people. And I started to realize that I had this uncanny knack and this insatiable curiosity to know what's in our food. And so I started to to do investigations that nobody had ever done before. And one of the the investigations I did um, was actually into Chipotle. You know, this was a brand that was telling us that their food was with integrity, that, um, that we should trust them, that they're better than McDonald's, you know, all of these things. And I wanted to know what I was actually eating when I went there. And when I called to ask for the ingredients and I emailed them, they wouldn't tell me. They said it was proprietary information. And they also told me, hey, you know, do you have an allergy to something? I'm like, why do I need to have an allergy to know what I'm eating? 
And so that really angered me that the headquarters of Chipotle wouldn't tell me what was in their food, but they were using this marketing food with integrity. Like, how do we know it's with integrity? And so- How long ago was that, just out of curiosity? 2012. Okay, so your blog was just barely a year old or something like that. Yes, and I didn't have hardly anyone reading it at the time, I tell you. Um, And so, you know, I, I was- I was so upset that I went down and I marched down to every Chipotle location I could drive to and try to convince employees to show me the back of packages of ingredients behind their manager's back Mm. so that I could write down what was in them and so I could report it to the public. And it was that moment when I started to release that kind of information that the blog started to take off. And you, it came, was, you came, became like a Dateline reporter almost or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I was really, you know, um, uh, uh, an amateur in a lot of ways in my writing, in my investigations. But I just had this, um, this desire to know the truth. And, you know, you know, when I first started writing, I was just writing for my friends and my family. And so I didn't do a lot of like, this is data and this is backed by science and this is research. And, you know, you got to have all these links and all right. of your source data and all that stuff because I was, I mean, I was just blogging for my mom and, you know, my couple friends. And so when I started to, um, to do these other kind of thorough investigations, I started doing that kind of work. I actually started to research and back up everything I was saying with information and so that people would realize that this is trustworthy and that this is the truth. And, um, and so when I, when I released that investigation into Chipotle and, and railed into them for not disclosing their ingredients, Within a week, someone started a petition on my behalf, and it got over 2,000 signatures uh, in a week. And then Chipotle's communication director, Chris Arnold, reached out to me, and he said, we're sorry, and we're going to change this. We're going to post the ingredients online, um, but just bear with us because we're going to change some of the ingredients that you wrote about. And so it was that moment that when I started having these discussions with major food corporations as just a blogger that I realized that, wow, making your voice heard can really change companies, can change the world. And, you know, six months later, he sent me an email um, with the words, ta-da, to the list of ingredients in Chipotle. And not only did they list the ingredients online for the first time in history, they did something no other fast food chain has ever done, which was to post which ingredients are GMO and which ones weren't. And now they've taken it even a step further. And so gone- you kind of started a bit of a movement with Chipotle and now they're hinging their entire story on this GMO thing, aren't they? So they yep. kind of owe you a little bit, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, they don't owe me anything. They owe the American public the truth, right? That's true. About and I'm a big fan food. of them. You know, I do believe they're doing the right thing these days, it yeah, seems. No, you know? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they still have some ways to go. Let's just talk about, you know, they're still feeding the the animals that they use, um, the meat that they use. They're still feeding that livestock and the cattle um, GMOs, and they're still serving lots of Coke that's full of GMOs. So mm-hmm. let's just, you know, it's a step in the right direction, and it's one that we should absolutely celebrate. And, you know, I 
when I heard the news, I was ecstatic and I told everyone, hey, go to Chipotle today. Tell them why you support them and, and order the the black bean bowl with big scoop of guacamole on top because that's my favorite. <laughs> so so, so you, you, you do this investigative reporting and your eyes are open to the power of blogging. And um, fast forward to today, just so the audience understands the, the magnitude of the platform that you've built. I mean, just kind of throw out a couple... Uh, metrics, if you will, just so everybody sure. understands in, in the few years you've been doing this, what you've been able to accomplish. So the first year I was blogging, I believe we had a total of 11,000 visitors per year that first year. Wow. Okay. 11,000 visitors. Last year, there was 54 million visitors to the blog. That is awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And for the first year and a half of the blog, you know, I was doing this as part-time. I was making no money doing the blog. This was purely a passion project. And when I quit the corp- my corporate career, I quit cold turkey. You know, I left my salary and I left my career of 13 years and said, you know what? The food movement needs me more. And, and that's really when things started to take off, when I started to put my full attention on the blog and really changed the way the blog was viewed by the people. Before, when people came to foodbabe.com, they saw three cartoon characters. They didn't know who was writing this. It was like this ghostly food babe character. They had no idea. After I quit my job at the end of 2012, in early 2013, I I I changed the format of the blog. I finally showed who I am and that new header that you see hot on the trail to investigate your food. And that picture of me holding the the magnifying glass was the first time I ever like posted, you know, me and who I am on the blog. And things started to change when I did that. People finally could relate to who I was, what I was doing. I started to share my story even more in a personal way. And I still, you know, everybody you know, has a certain limit to how much they can share of their personal life. And gosh, I have so much more to share and so many more stories. So I'm so excited about the future. But, um, but as soon as I started putting my full attention in the blog, that's when things started to really take off. Within two months, I started a petition to take on the lar- one of the largest food corporations in the world, Kraft. And um, recently we won. Um, we got them to remove artificial food dyes from Kraft Mac and Cheese. And, and this petition was really to highlight that companies – are using safer ingredients in uh, their same products that they sell overseas, but they don't use those same safer ingredients for us. They actually use um, the lack of FDA regulation to their benefit to make money as opposed to our health. And, you know, when you look at a Kraft mac and cheese package in Europe, there's no artificial food dyes because Europe requires a warning label that says may cause adverse effects on activity and attention in children. And instead of Kraft putting that warning label on their product in Europe, they said, you know what, we're going to remove those ingredients and we're going to put safer ingredients in it. And they didn't do that for Americans. And so I felt like that double standard, that hypocritical policy needed to be addressed. And that is actually the case with many of my petitions, um, whether I took on, you know, General Mills and Kellogg's or Subway, you know, all of those petitions had to do with companies deciding to take out chemicals for citizens overseas, very risky, controversial chemicals that are banned for a reason or require warning labels for a reason. Um, 
that they take out these chemicals for citizens overseas, but not their own American consumers. And I felt like that double standard needed to be addressed and continues to, you know, be um, a launching point for a lot of my campaigns. And when I, you know, that, that kind of craft campaign really, you know, put me in the media spotlight. Uh, I was interviewed by every major media outlet under the sun. It felt like um, it was the most uh, exciting and most terrifying time as well, because, you know, I have never done media training. I don't know the first thing about, um, talking to the media about any of this stuff. And, um, I tell you, it was just so powerful seeing, um, when you do, uh, have the courage to, to speak out and to be, um, public about this information, what it can inspire. I mean, that month I received thousands of letters from parents, across the globe talking about how when they removed artificial food dyes from their children's diet, how their child's health improved, their learning improved, their asthma improved, their skin rashes improved. I mean, all sorts of stories under the sun. And hearing those letters from thousands of parents is what really inspired me to go and knock on Kraft headquarters door a month later. It was actually on April Fool's Day. It was no joke though. Um, and, uh, and, and knock on their door and say, here, here's this 270,000 signatures of petitions. Why aren't you making this change? And, and I ended up meeting with Kraft that day. And that story is actually the beginning of my book. And it's really, um, it's really intense, so you need to read that. But um, awesome! I want to ask you. I want to ask you. Um, obviously, you know, you mentioned the media, and I wanted to get to video. Um, video has been a key part of what you're doing, and I want you to explain how you've been using video because a lot of people probably don't understand the power of the combination between the words and the videos. Because I would argue that video has been a key part of your platform, right? So, can you kind of explain what you do with video so maybe others could understand how you're using those to to affect? you know, sure. outcome or change, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, anytime I would launch a petition now, I always do a video along with it. Uh, the reason is, is because number one, people learn differently. Some people like reading some people like watching and visually, if you can represent your ideas in a video in a quick one and a half to three minute video, um, it can be very, very powerful. Not only does it, uh, uh, solidify your message with your viewers, but it also helps people share the information with all age groups too. Because uh, not everyone will read a you know a, a thousand word blog post or a petition, but they might watch a video. Um, and so the multimedia platforms in order to get your message across is very important. Now, I have to be honest with you. I'm just learning about all of this social media stuff. Four years ago, I wasn't, didn't have a Facebook account, not even a personal one. I didn't have a Twitter account. I didn't have a YouTube page. I had nothing because in the corporate world, we didn't have that kind of stuff because you didn't want your boss to find you know, your personal information online. So I had to learn all this stuff from scratch. And a lot of it was just based on passion. You were pretty dang effective though because I remember seeing the – the yoga mat one. I think that was that one of your first big ones that that or was there something even earlier than that one? Um, that video actually, yeah, got quite a bit of views. Um, and I think you know it was it was just it was my idea of um, just 
you know, it's just showing how absurd the amount of chemicals um, and additives that are being put into our food and what their applications are being used for outside of food of like why they're even in our food. And I thought it would be fun to like chew. I'm into yoga. I love yoga. And so I thought it would be fun to get on a yoga mat and chew a yoga mat and like bite it and to make a point. And um, it was very effective. And that's where I first (laughs) discovered you. I think it probably was about three years ago. But, you know, I mean, what's great about you in these videos is, I mean, you've gotten extremely good at it. If you claim to be a rookie, you've got some great support behind you because, you know, your videos are succinct to the point. Um, They're they're exceptional. And I think that's what's exciting about what you're doing is videos are so hot right now. And all the social platforms, like, for example, Facebook, you know, you can upload video to Facebook and all of a sudden it can go crazy viral. You don't even need YouTube anymore. Um, And it's pretty exciting. I mean, have you found that the videos have probably been part of the reason why the media has come to you because they've watched you on video and have said, okay, this woman seems to have a presence. We can get her on camera. Yeah, I think it has been a benefit there. And it's also one of the brilliant um, things about video is when you create a video and they don't even call you for an interview. They just show your video and talk about it. There you go. It's like B-roll. <laughs> so, yeah. So there you don't even need to do the interview, you know, and that's been the case, you know, especially with that yoga mat um, video over and over again. It was pretty funny when they used it on Good Morning America. I was like, wow, I'm eating a yoga mat on Good Morning America. Great. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and so, yeah, so it's it's definitely great for that. And actually, I, you know, it's so funny that you say this is um, – you know, a friend of mine just came to me and he goes, you know, Vani, I really want to work on my podcast. I've ordered all the equipment. I want to do everything I can. And this is no knock to you at all, Michael, but um, in this amazing podcast that I'm on. But I said to him, I said, you know what you should do? You should do video and podcasting at the same time, or at least video because you're so great on camera. And this particular individual is so great on camera and he's been killing it. Um, with his videos that he's been producing that are just like a minute and a half. That's awesome. And it's just him talking. And I tell you, when people see who you are, they see the passion behind what you do, they get a feel of who you truly are at the core. They, you know, either are going to love you or, you know, sometimes they'll hate you, but um, you'll really, you know, speak volumes about, you know, your message. And it's really important to get that out. And the thing is, is like what I find so powerful about video in this space, uh, especially the food movement, is that the majority of videos about food are being funded by the food companies themselves. Like if you think of any commercial you see about food or any kind of um, advertisement you see about food or even some food-specific shows on Food Network, other places, a lot of them are funded in part by these food corporations. And so getting this message out in an unadulterated, truthful, um, and an upfront way um, is going to be really important to seeing the food movement change. And I hope to see other food movement leaders start to use video because I think it's really important to get a different, you know, we need to level the playing field. You know, we're up against these, uh, you know, multi-million dollar Doritos commercials. You know, we need right. to, <laughs> you know, there's actually some groups that have been really successful at creating video. There's amazing Dorito um, 
commercial that uh, a group put together. I think it was the Sum of Us. I think that's the name of the group that put together a Doritos commercial talking about the palm oil used in that and and the destruction it's bringing to um, Indonesia and other parts of the world. And so you know, seeing, you know, people using their own, you know, marketing techniques, um, against them has been really interesting to me and, and watching that. Um, and I mean, I, I hope to get into even more video. And so when you say like my video platform has been successful, I'm like, uh, what are you talking about? I have so much more to do. No, I mean, I think it is, you know, and, um, and you know, what's great about video and audio the good news about audio is you can multitask. So there's this whole podcast movement where people are listening while they're driving or whatever, where they could never consume yeah. video. Like you could never do this interview on video and have anybody watch it because it's just going to be too darn. Well, they would for you, but <laughs> you know, cause you have such a crazy fan base, but you know, it's it, all these great new mediums out there that we can now do is just amazing to me. Now I want to ask you, you've got a massive following on Facebook, almost a million fans. Was that just kind of an outcropping of your big blog following, or did you uh, did you do something special to build that fan base? I'm just curious on the Facebook I, side. I did not do anything particularly special. I've never even bought a Facebook ad yet. Oh, but you must Everyone's- be you must be feeding your fans with special content or whatever, right? Or have you done something to nurture that, or has it just all been kind of an organic growth? And you it's definitely been organic. The only thing that. Um, you know, I did at the beginning is I valued Facebook more than even um, my email list, right? And that was probably actually, I don't know, maybe a good thing, maybe a bad thing. According to internet marketers, you know, you know, like your email list is the strongest thing that you own. Right. Um, but, you know, back when I didn't know anything about any of this, you know, I really valued the Facebook um, reach. And back then, you know, they didn't really, they, the algorithm was way different. And so you could reach more people and stuff. Um, but you still, so- you still have such a big fan base that even though you're probably not getting the same reach you used to, I'm sure that your fans are, are, are on Facebook. And that's part of the reason you're able to evangelize this many people and get them to sign petitions and stuff. Is it, am I right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like I have, I have to tell you the truth. Like, you know, I'm not sure, you know, at the beginning of my blog, blogging career, you'll see on some of the end of blog posts, they'll say like, come and like my fan page, right? Mm. Come and like my Facebook fan page. And that was the biggest thing that I did to try to get, um, people to sign or to come on to the fan page. I also would write for bigger bloggers too, which was helpful. So when they shared, um, my blog posts, you know, they would mention me that, that I'm on Facebook and people would go like it. So, you know, that was very helpful too. Um, but there hasn't been anything in particular that, you know, that I can tell you that has been like, yes, I did this and I saw this dramatic increase. Well, uh, you know, I'll give you an example, like, you know, becoming friends with other, um, large Facebook pages is never a bad thing, you know, and, and, and collaborating and sharing each other's content. That's never a bad thing. I know that that tends to work really well because at the end of the day, you know, um, your fan is also somebody else's fan too. If your if your ideals are the same and you have the same principles and and you're we're all working for the same goal, so have you experimented with uploading your videos directly to Facebook? I have, and I love it. I absolutely love it. It really um, has reason- probably taken the reach of those videos a lot further, hasn't it? Yes, and you know, some say that that's. I know I started reading about this recently, and some say that. Um, 
it's artificial because Facebook automatically plays it and sometimes people keep scrolling and then they don't watch the full thing and, you know, all of this stuff. But I think also Facebook shows it to more people than a YouTube link. So it's actually more effective to post it directly onto Facebook, but also use the YouTube link. So like, you know, when you, it's almost like, you know, when you write a blog post, you share it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram everywhere. Um, it's just kind of the same thing for video. Now, if you create a video, make sure you post a little clip on Instagram, you put the full thing on Facebook and on YouTube. Um, you know, and so you have a little, and maybe you put a little six second vine together too, you know, it's almost like you have to use all these platforms in order to get the maximum value for your work. And that's really what I think people need to understand and, and realize with a blog like mine that is such, has such a large monthly following, you have to realize I don't blog every day. You know, it's so funny. Someone wrote this something. You probably um, don't need to blog every day because your stuff has long legs, right? I mean, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I I don't blog every day because my investigations are very thorough. They take weeks to do. You know, it's not something I can just bust out in a couple hours. You know, it's like calling companies, reaching out to companies, emailing them, calling experts, talking to the scientists behind these food chemicals and asking them about the safety and, you know, going out to consumer protection agencies and asking, you know, hey, what do you think about this study or what the science says and blah, 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 and making sure I'm reporting it accurately. You know, it's all of that work. And so, um, and so I blog, you know, once or twice a week, maybe. And, 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 and most of the time it's usually like only four blog posts a month. And I think what's really important for people to realize is that the first time you share something on social media, not everyone sees it. And not everyone is just waiting around trying to read your content. They are living their busy lives. They have their kids to take care of. They have soccer games. They have all sorts of things that they're doing. They're on a work trip or whatever. They're on vacation. So it's important for people to remember you have to reshare your content over and over again. And don't be shy about doing that. And don't be scared to do that either because I think it's so important for people to realize that like there's, there's so much content out there and people just can't consume it all. And, um, even though I want to blog, like physically want to blog every day and like share something new every day, cause there's so much information out there about the food movement that I want people to know. I realize that that's not even good. It's actually better to have higher quality work and share it multiple times to get the maximum value out of that work that you do. Okay, I've got one more question for you, and I know we're, we're, we're running a little long for those that are listening, but I know this is something I, that you're going to want to talk about. Um, obviously, when you build a big platform and you become an advocate, if you will, for um, a movement or, or create a movement, you're going to have some people that disagree with you. And I know that you've drawn criticism from your opponents. And, um, you know, what kind of advice would you share to people that want to go out there and um, share their opinion and they may have critics? Because obviously, you know, sometimes critics are successful and they get us to stop doing what we believe is right. And I know that you have definitely dealt with your fair share of critics. So what kind of advice do you give to people listening right now that might be a little bit scared that the critics are going to come out? How have you, what have you learned from the process? Oh, I've learned so much. <laughs> I've come a long way too. Um, so, you know, I never really sought out to be this kind of public figure in the food movement. And um, once you get multi-billion dollar corporations to change their policies, some overnight, 
I mean, everyone from Anheuser-Busch to Miller Coors to General Mills to Subway to Kraft to Starbucks to Chipotle, you get these this major influence on this amount of money that is, you just can't even fathom. I can't even understand the amount of money that has changed hands, that has been lost from the conventional junk food companies and, and really gained by the companies that are doing it right. I can't even fathom it. Um, there's just a lot of people that are going to want the food system to stay the same. They're going to want to continue to produce these chemicals or create the technology to um, come up with these chemicals, whether it be food scientists or professors at certain universities or um, people who are fighting um, the right to know for labeling some of these ingredients. Um, you know, there's going to be people that are always on the other side of this because there's so much money involved. And, but I also realized that there are a lot of thoughtful critics. There's a lot of critics that are thoughtful, that actually make you better and actually make you stronger as a result of their criticisms. And so, you know, I've taken that approach where, you know, some of my critics have pointed out mistakes that I made four years ago when I was just writing for my couple friends and my mom. And so I did the responsible thing and I took down those blog posts, right? And then I also issued a corrections policy. So like now if there's something to be corrected, people know about it, you know, and so they make me better in that respect, right? But then there's also critics that are misogynistic or defamatory or just want to get famous off your name or are just trying to keep the broken food system like it is today because they're benefiting from a technology or something that's being used that's coupled with either pesticides or the chemicals used in our food supply. Now, those critics are the ones that you're going to have to realize they're going to be there. They're part of your journey. They're part of your path. And one of my favorite phrases by this amazing Buddhist monk um, who writes in calligraphy, it's, it's no mud, no lotus. Without mud, Without the, the struggle, you can't have progress. Mm. And so with any society that's ever changed the way of thinking or broke free from a broken system, um, they've all had to go through the struggle. And it's something that you have to accept that's going to be there. And that acceptance actually allows you to recognize it and move on and not let your eye off the ball. And truly, um, you know, and, and many people have said this and, and are witnessing this, that many of the, the groups that have come together to um, try to defame me or to um, destroy my credibility or my character are there for, for one reason. You know, they're, they're, some of them are paid by some of the PR firms, you know, hired by these chemical companies. I mean, there's a whole arm uh, discredit arm <laughs> in the Monsanto company that's used to try to take down critics of the technology. And, you know, I just want to make one thing clear on this podcast is, you know, I'm not anti-science. I'm not against biotechnology. I think it could be used in the right, um, the right uh, ways. But right now, the way it's being used is very questionable, and we don't. We have a lot of unanswered questions, and we have a World Health Organization that said 
that the main chemical that's coupled with that technology is a probable carcinogen. And for that reason, I think we should label GMOs. And I think that's a, a very reasonable request considering that 65 other countries around the world label this for their citizens. And, and so when they attack me, usually it's an attack of the messenger, right? Um, many people have been talking about these issues much longer than I have. Um, the Environmental Working Group, the Center of Science and Public Interest. And I think it's just really important to for the people who are listening out there, for them to realize that if you have a message, if you know that you have to get this information out, for first of all, to not be scared and just to be as courageous as possible and realize that fear only means that you're relying upon yourself, that you need to recognize that there's a much bigger mission out there, that there are many other people behind you, and that the universe has your back. My, my dear friend and mentor, Gabriel Bernstein, always tells me that, that the universe has your back because really this movement is about making people as healthy as possible and trying to find an answer to the increases in cancer and heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune disorders and trying to get people to realize and experience the health that they never thought was possible. And as long as your goal is to help people, nobody can get in the way of that. And if they do try, just to remember to keep your eye on the ball and keep going and, and not let them dis- distract you because that's really their goal is to try to distract you. And, um, and they want you to, to just curl up and decide, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be the, uh, take all this um, criticism anymore. And, and there's a reason why I went through all of the pain I did as a child and as a young adult. I think it really made me strong enough to be able to handle uh, the, the public fight and the public debate. Well, it's really exciting. Um, you know, to the person that's listening right now, whether you agree or disagree with what Vani, you know, stands for, I think her story is inspirational because you have really done something phenomenal. You have used the online mediums that are available at your disposal to stand up for what you believe. And you built a massive community behind you. And that community has got your back. (laughs) And that community, along with your voice and you leading, is empowering you to do things that were frankly impossible to do 10 years ago. And I think that it's really exciting. And my hope is that people that listen to this story right now um, will be inspired to go try something that maybe they've been thinking about for a long time. And maybe there's something that your friends have been telling you, you ought to write about that, or you ought to get on camera and talk about that. I would encourage you to do that because clearly, Vani, you're just getting started. <laughs> and uh, I'm really excited that you made time to come and share your story with my listeners today. Um, where can people discover more about you and your new book, The Food Babe? You just come over to foodbabe.com, sign up for updates, come over to the about page, read more about what we're doing. Um, you know, I, you know, if you want to be part of a movement that is changing companies for the better, if you want to be part of a movement to get healthier, if you're looking for the habits that help you live in this crazy overprocessed world, that is what foodbabe.com is for. And I hope that you will value the information that I put out on there and, and we'll learn from it and, and try some of uh, these recipes and other things that I have on the blog that are there for you completely free. Bonnie, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. 
Well, I know today's show went a little long, but I hope you found a lot of value in the interview. I found it very, very interesting. If there was anything that we mentioned in today's show and you missed it, we take all the notes for you at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 148. Stands for episode 148. Also, subscribe on that podcast player if you're a new listener and you're not already getting all of our future episodes. It's free. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you in the driver's seat next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.